it's this idea that the Stoic is safe by and finds safe harbor by retreating to an inner citadel. I think an idea probably got Pierre Hadot might have planted um, isn't the only notion of Stoicism. So I wanted to think about resilience as having social supports. So it's you know ancient lessons for modern resilience, and I don't think we're resilient um, by turning to our inner resources only. We're agile when we get supported from systems that, that are larger than ourselves, family structures, friendships, and that, that, was, that was the um, fire in my belly. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose Robinson Earhart here with the podcast and the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 99. And this episode is with Nancy Sherman, who is Distinguished University Professor and Professor of Philosophy at Georgetown University. So Nancy has worked quite broadly across value theory and ancient philosophy, uh, writing on such varied topics as military ethics, moral psychology, the emotions, Stoicism, Aristotle, and has also written a, a number of books on these topics, which are often interrelated in these books. And some of them are After War, Stoic Warriors, and The Fabric of Character. But the occasion for this episode is Nancy's most recent book, Stoic Wisdom, Ancient Lessons for Modern Resilience, which has just come out on paperback. And of course, which you can find linked in the description. And unlike most other popular interpretations of the, of Stoic philosophy, Nancy comes at it from a philosopher's perspective. And she gets at an often neglected emphasis that Stoic philosophers placed on community and camaraderie for well-being. And beyond this book, though, Nancy and I talk about a number of things. Uh, for some context, we start out by discussing Aristotelian ethics and the difference, some of the differences between Aristotle's ethics and Stoic ethics. And then we talk about some of the lessons for everyday life that come from Stoic philosophy, along with, well, I, I don't know if you want to call this everyday lessons, but we get into military ethics, Nancy's mental health experience, uh, how Stoicism might help with people returning from military experience. And you should check out Nancy's website, which is nancysherman.com, and also Nancy's Twitter. And she's on Twitter at Dr. Nancy Sherman. Uh, that's DR. And without any further ado now, I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Nancy. It seems like at the beginning of your career, your focus was primarily on Aristotle, but then it quickly shifted to the Stoics, uh, their ethics, and then in particular, the relationship between Stoicism and war. Though, of course, I mean, you've written on plenty of other things in, in the intervening time as well. Mm -hmm. But what was it that immediately gripped you about Stoic philosophy and war that got you to change your focus and that's held your attention since then? 
Well, it was quite accidental. Uh, I got a phone call in the early 90s, uh, so quite some time ago, three decades ago almost, um, and it was from the United States Naval Academy, and they were in the middle of a cheating scandal. And the cheating scandal involved what was called the double E, electrical engineering course. And they asked me if I could brainstorm with them. Huh. One thing led to another, and I ended up staying at the Naval Academy for close to th three years, uh, helping to set up their both their ethics course and a, a place called the Stocks, Stockdale's. It came to be known as the Stockdale Center for Leadership, possibly ethics and leadership. Um, so the interest in Stoicism and the interest in the military went hand in hand in the following way. Toward the end of the course, and it was a non-chronological course, we came to the Stoics. Uh, and their ship had arrived, you might say. <laughs> this was their philosophy. And it was their philosophy in part because of a guy named James Bond Stockdale, who was a Vietnam War veteran. And at Stanford, you, um, you would probably know about him because he has some uh, reputation having been given the Enchiridion um, by um, uh, one of his professors in the humanities. And he memorized it uh, on the Ticonderoga, USS Ticonderoga. And then he um, used it for seven and a half years when he was imprisoned as the senior uh, prisoner of war in the Hanoi Hilton or the North Vietnamese uh, prison camp. That said, given he was an, a Navy guy and a Naval Academy graduate, but with a larger footprint than just that, they knew about him and they knew about the Epictetus and the Enchiridion. And Stoicism spoke to them in a way it never spoke to any of my students in the past at Yale or at Georgetown. And most of my students really didn't even know much about Stoicism. But whether these students at the Naval Academy knew about it a lot or a little, it uh, was a philosophy of suck it up and truck on, as, a, as they put it, deprivation. And how do we endure deprivation? So I, I got interested in, as I wrote in Stoic Warriors, sort of the, which was a response to that experience. And the first time I really um, dappled in Stoicism, the way in which uh, Stoicism had blessings and curses. I saw too many of the curses. I have some mental health background. Um, and so I saw that many of them thought about stoicism as a way of forgetting about emotions, repressing them in some ways, um, dissociating, you know, enduring war, uh, essentially, uh, by trying to uh, tough it up. And I, I thought that was really problematic. So I, I, I came to look at stoicism, you might say, in a critical way, but also in a way, in a very, uh, way that made sense to me. I really didn't want people um, turning to a philosophy that gave them temporary armor, but then ha handicapped them for life. Hmm. Well, you've, you've said a lot of things that I have immediate questions about. One, I, I saw your mental health background and would really like to get into that 
a little more later. Uh, but the first thing that jumps out at me about your story is why did the Naval Academy reach out to you? Because I just get the sense, and this is entirely unsubstantiated by any experience, that the Navy isn't often in the business of consulting with philosophers, especially, I mean, for cheating scandals in electrical, I think it was electrical engineering. Good question. Well, I know nothing about electrical engineering and continue to know nothing about electrical engineering. But I do know that if you ever walk on a campus such as West Point or the Naval Academy or Air Force Academy and Coast Guard Academy, all places where I have been, it's posted with mottos of sorts at the Naval Academy, honor, courage and commitment. So honor codes, which we have at Georgetown, are important parts of the life of midshipmen. And so um, cheating, it, you know, was, is obviously highly problematic. Um, secondly, I live outside Washington. Annapolis is uh, oh, right. 45 minutes outside Washington. And so I was within a, you know, stone's throw in a certain way. So, you know, I was convenient. And it was actually a chaplain who first reached out to me, um, who somehow knew of me through my teaching at Yale. He had also been at Yale, but we may have overlapped. So, um, yeah, uh, all these places, uh, and I began with the Air Force, teach ethics. That mm -hmm. is, a, a, it's a rather important part, whether right. it's um, how seriously it's taken is another story. Um, and in my case, I had these fabulous, uh, interesting persons who were my TAs. They were not people like you or like people that I have as TAs at Georgetown or I had at Yale or I was at Harvard. It was, it was officers and sometimes admirals and, and Marine colonels. And they had been in Vietnam the more senior ones like the Admiral and the Marine colonels when I was protesting war, they mm. were in the Mekong Delta when I was on the Washington DC mall protesting. Um, so it was, I learned as much from them as, as they learned from me. That's to be sure. Mm. Eye opening, so, eye opening. <laughs> I think a nice way to transition to some of your more academic research is actually a, a popular piece that you wrote for the New York Times. And the, the title really resonated with me. And it's, if you're reading Stoicism for Life Hacks, uh, you're missing the point. And I, and I mean, you have a chapter on Stoicism and Life Hacks in your new book, Stoic Wisdom as well. And my first exposure to Stoicism was actually through this, uh, this sort of cottage industry of books and podcasts, etc, in which you're really just sort of given, I don't know, quotes and unsubstantiated advice. And consequently, I mean, that's what I thought stoicism really was. It was just sort of an empty doctrine of, I think the phrase you used was suck it up and, and chug on. But it wasn't until I studied with Katya Vogt at Columbia, uh, mm -hmm. who was actually very excited to hear that I was uh, talking to you because she's so interested in, in stoicism. But that's when I realized that the Stoic tradition has this tremendously rich history. I mean, that it wasn't just Marcus Aurelius, but there there is a philosophy of physics, philosophy of mind, logic, all sorts of things. And maybe talking about your piece would give us some context. What are the life hacks that you 
have in mind? And what is the point of reading Stoicism? So a lot of people, as you say, do turn to Stoicism for secular religion, you might say, and secular religion with these uh, very um, pithy quotes, especially from someone like Epictetus, um, but also to some degree Marcus Aurelius, although uh, I think he's much more obscure, harder to read, um, and rambling, to be sure. Um, but Stoicism, That's partially because his texts were a diary, right? They're to myself, to oneself, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they're written on a battlefield um, at night. You know, he, I think he had difficulty sleeping. He probably took stuff, we yeah. think. and We can it, forgive him for rambling then. <laughs> That's true. Um, it's not argumentative. It's um, gratitude here to these people and to those people and a sense of... Um, um, uh, a sense of humility, but also he, like most in that period, would have had tutors who were trained in Stoicism. So it was the street philosophy of the time, and it was um, highly accessible, uh, and so he would have had familiarity with it. Um, what about it as a life hack? Well, some of it is, unlike reading Aristotle, um, my true love in many ways, the Stoics um, have um, exercises. Um, Seneca talks a lot, who I think is wonderful, um, talks a lot about uh, pre-rehearsal, pre-rehearsal of evil. So we have these external goods that uh, Aristotle talked about that are part of your flourishing life, but they're, they make you um, vulnerable to luck. They make you vulnerable to um, losing what you love. So to love and loss, um, they're sticky attachments. And so it's sort of useful, the Stoics say, A, not to think of them as um, constitutive parts of your happiness, flourishing, or eudaimonia, but really as indifference with the TS, ta adiaphora. And by that, the things that are indifferent. And by that, they mean not that you're indifferent to them, but that you have to learn new approach and avoidance behaviors so that you don't get stuck on them. So they're not acquisitive or, and sticky um, attachments or very painful um, ways of avoiding stuff. And so they have these exercises you might call them hacks, one, you know, life hacks, ways in which you can try to diminish the, their, their role in your life. It's not that you give up having friends or having children or loved ones or death. How could you give that up? Though some people in Silicon Valley where you're living <laughs> should practice yes. giving up death and becoming, trying to be immortal in some way. But, you know, they think, okay, your mortality is something you might be afraid of, a bad well, anticipate it. How are you going to approach it? You know, that sort of thing. Or you might anticipate in the pandemic, you know, that you might get quite sick. How would you, um, how do you adjust to some of these things? So they have these, <clears throat> don't, uh, this idea that you shouldn't be blindsided. You should think a little bit. Um, Cicero, rehearsing some of these views, says, um, um, anticipate the future, dwell in the future. And so that's quite reasonable advice. And I think that's uh, uh, something that people who are seeking self-help think is reasonable. Um, 
Epictetus is kind of funny in this regard. He says, essentially, start small and then get big. Small, you, um, you might break a vase in your house. You should sort of think a little bit about it in advance and also cool your jet, you know, if it happens. And then he also says, well, you might go to the pool. And there may be a lot of people that are pickpockets in the public baths and noisy and gossipy. You know, something I think about a little bit when I go choose a time to swim. Are they, is it going to be noisy? <laughs> um, will I have the lane, uh, enough of a lane to be able to do the backstroke outside? That's that kind of thing. He's, you know, he's a sort of plan, anticipate. And so that if you do have unwelcome or undesired um, consequences or outcomes, it doesn't um, upset you that much. So that's one idea, pre-rehearsing of the bads. And people make a lot of that as a, a modern day life hack, you might say. Another one is to attach to your intentions, mental reservation. Says Seneca, I'll go, I'll go sailing. I'll go on, out on a boat unless it rains. Okay, so you, you know, if it doesn't rain, the beginning actually of, of Virginia Woolf to the lighthouse. Yes, James, we can go to the lighthouse if it doesn't rain. It becomes a mantra in that novel, in part because there's a little boy who really wants to go. But his mother, who I think is Virginia Woolf's mother, Mrs. Ramsey, is trying to um, calm his expectations so he won't be overly disappointed. So those are some of the... <clears throat> practical things that people get excited about and some, you know, they call life hacks. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't say that you would really find that kind of pragmatic set of exercises in Aristotle. You know, he's much more interested in telling you what are the constituents of a flourishing life. Hmm. Um, but it's often called self-help, but self-help is a misnomer. A modern misnomer insofar as the Stoics were really keen on community. They were the first cosmopolitans. They were <clears throat> not quite the first, the cynics were, but they, Zeno wrote a republic about the cosmos and our citizenship in the cosmos. Is, is this Zeno of Kidia? <clears throat> yeah. Okay. There are a lot of Zenos. So, yeah. <laughs> there sure are. There's a Zeno who didn't do so well in, in, a, in a race or was thinking about races yeah. with, <laughs> yeah. with, with a tortoise and a hare. Right. Exactly. <laughs> now. So anyway, that, that's 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 part of um, the appeal. But also, if you're thinking about it as self-help, you should listen to Marcus Aurelius who and Zeno who say, well, Marcus says it this way. If you've ever seen a body with a trunk separated from hands, legs, and arms, that's what we make of ourselves when we cut ourselves off from each other. And so oh, that's really nice. that you really have to belong and have a sense of being at home in the world, a catchphrase for the Stoics, in which you are attached to others or affiliated. They're not turning their back on affiliation. Now, is that is this sense of belonging and community then what you're referencing in the title of that times piece, when you write, if you're reading stoicism for life hacks, you're missing the point. Yeah, that's in part of it. I really emphasize in my book, Stoic Wisdom right there, that um, this, that, that people have, have failed to see how critical 
and substantive, the uh, social aspect of, of um, Stoicism is in the sense of building a flourishing life through a sense of belonging. And it comes out over and over again. Seneca's writing these letters at the end of his life at, with a, in an epistolary relationship, probably literary and not actual. But that said, he's always thinking about how he's mentoring someone else and he can't can't wait to receive the letters. And, um, and if you think of Rubin's very famous um, painting of Seneca dying, he's surrounded by friends. It's a kind of uh, Phaedo scene, Plato in, uh, in, of Socrates dying with his friends around him. He's not doing it alone. Um, he needs, he needs <laughs> help of friends to make sure they get the veins and can help him uh, cut his veins or die in the right way. Well, you've already mentioned Aristotle as your true love, and you said a little bit about his thoughts on ethics in response to that question. But granted that Aristotelian ethics and Stoic ethics, they're not really things that can be summed up in slogans. I mean, thousands of years later, people are still writing copiously about them. But since they are so close chronologically, I mean, um, Zeno of Kidium, who you just mentioned, uh, the founding Stoic, he was born 12 years before Aristotle's death. Is it possible to sum up the primary differences before we turn uh, uh, more particularly to the Stoics and maybe why Stoicism, was Stoicism sort of a response in part to Aristotle's ethics? It's not clear how much they knew. It was in the air, if not studied. Okay. Um, so, uh, and Definitely in the air was Aristotle's idea that's fairly messy, I think, in uh, Nicomachean Ethics 1, um, sort of 7 through 13 to the end um, of Book 1, uh, but that you need external goods in your life in order to flourish, and those external goods uh, could include some degree of health, wealth, um, uh, um uh, luck, um, being able to uh, not have the kind of fortune that befell Priam, losing all his sons in the Trojan War, which if he was happy happy initially, it would have reversed his happiness. So a major, major blow. Um, Aristotle doesn't quite tell you how you're going to order those, the primary goods of the good life, which would be your excellences of character an excellence of intellect and the uh, kinds of goods that are so critical on a view like his to actualize or exercise your excellence. I mean, after all, he's reacting to Plato in, and Plato thinks that um, a, a well-lived life is possessing virtue. Aristotle and says, no, it's not possessing virtue. It's actualizing it, exercising it. So to exercise your virtue or excellences of character you need resources. Uh, if it's going to be liberality, you need some money. If it's magnificence or magnanimity, you mean a lot of money. Um, if it's um, uh, even friendship, uh, which he includes in some way or other uh, as really important in the good life, you, they, they can't die early. Um, your children um, can't predecease you. Um, so there, or if they do, it's going to 
it's going to create a, a blow to your happiness. But he doesn't tell you exactly how you order these things. And, you know, so it's messy. The Stoics are really keen on bright stripes and they want a bright stripe between the virtues that they think are in a Socratic move within your control and external goods, which they think are not within your control, preferred and dispreferred. And we're not even going to say you choose them. We're going to give a different term from them. We're going to say you prefer them or you disprefer them or you select them or you diselect. But virtue, you choose. So they really um, draw lots of, uh, of, of rigid lines and classifications to be able to correct some of what they see as the messiness in Aristotle's account. Um, how familiar? I mean, they don't take it on head on. So I can't, we don't really know if, if they did, how, how they interacted with it, who was it, what lectures or not. But it's definitely in the background. And they um, then become the, 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 the three main founders, um, Zeno, um, uh, Cleantes, and Chrysippus, um, didn't leave us much. Um, the texts are not. In terms of extant, extant texts. Yeah, extant texts, yeah. So we just presume that someone like Seneca um, and someone like Epictetus uh, have are, are reading some of the stuff. Um, we have some of the some of the things from Diogenes Laertius, a biographer, and some uh, uh, where he goes through the lives of, and presumably he was looking at papyri or texts, but we don't know exactly. So we it, it comes to us in bits and pieces in a way that Aristotle's ethic, Aristotle's philosophy doesn't. So yeah, but though Aristotle's texts, I mean, come mainly from their fragments of like lectures rather than. <laughs> The students treatise. who are taking notes, yeah. <laughs> as I always tell my students. Pretty amazing. <laughs> right. Now, um, does this Aristotelian preoccupation with exercising virtue also enter into the contemporary military character or philosophy at all? Because it strikes me as something that if the if the military or students at the naval cavity um, naval academy officers at the Naval Academy are interested in practicing uh, Stoic philosophy, they might also be interested in this notion of exercising their virtue in an Aristotelian sense. It's harder to read as a practical philosophy. You know, I'm okay. teaching a text course now on Aristotle's ethics in translation. Um, and it's a whole semester. And some of it's very straightforward, you might say, but some of it's a little hard, like, you know, understanding Aristotle's correction of Socrates and Plato on weakness of will and what's the difference between temperance and continence. I mean, it is, it, it's somewhat hard to encapsulate. You wouldn't get Ryan Holiday, I don't think, giving mm -hmm. you um, a, um, a popular version of Aristotle. It, it's, I mean, I mean, I find him quite accessible, but I've been living with it for a long time. But if you just pick up something or want a daily digest, I don't think the daily digest would be um, the function argument in book one, chapter seven of the Nicomachean Ethics. I know that at least among philosophers, we are very content to, and it's just part of our practice to criticize and respond to one another's 
works. But since you brought up Ryan Holiday, his books, I think, are the, the most popular in, in, about Stoicism. Are you a fan of those books or do they uh, miss anything important? Are they um, too simplistic? I don't know what I want to say about Ryan Holiday. I think his book on courage is interesting. I read it um, an advanced uh, copy of that and commented on it. I think he needed to write it. He, you know, he his. Um, I think he's earnest about his coming to Stoicism. Um, it it was a kind of watershed moment for him, you might say. And he, he his background is in PR, public relations, and um, it was um, uh, American Apparel, I think, was the company for which he right. was the PR guy. And it was a, there was a, there were complications in that a lot of complications and right. he reveals some of that at the end of um the courage book um i think he, he you know he does a good service in making some of the stuff available he's a good storyteller he's a good writer and he also has minions lots of people who can gather stories by that i mean you know they can say I think Florence Nightingale makes a big appearance in that book, if I'm not mistaken, in the Courage book. And you've got to get people who are doing some of the unearthing for you or, or uh, to be able to um, get how that might work and how that might figure. So he's using it. You know, he has a very big platform and mm -hmm. a, a wide audience, and he's figured out how to popularize it. So, um, I mean, he does stuff that's rather different from what a, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. a philosopher would do who um, in a certain way doesn't uh, have to be, well, these days everyone has to do their own PR. Who knows what our, who knows what the profession has become? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Not um, the profession I entered a long time ago. <laughs> no, um, not with all the professionalization, et cetera, et cetera. But, Returning, I guess, now to, to the more substantive issues again, something I wonder about, I don't know the answer to, is whether the Stoics had a fully fleshed out sort of meta-ethical stance about just where their ethical teachings stem from. I don't, I don't so much wonder whether they had beliefs about moral facts, this sort of thing, but more an epistemic question, like what justifies them in uh, believing the sort of pronouncements that they might make? It's hard to say. Um, I mean, first of all, they, they have epistemic virtues, um, which I, I wrote a paper with a long time ago, um, and so I just want to say that they are, you know, they think a, a fair bit about cautiousness and um, credibility and from whom you get testimony and stuff like that. So they're, they're, they're thinking about that. So the kinds of virtues that are generally important in, um, in exchange in inter, you know, and in, in affiliations and stuff, they, they spread to thinking about collecting knowledge um, with regard to, um justifications of of um some of their views i mean they have this idea and it's not justified it's a more just a dogmatic belief that there is um a unified cosmos 
that includes uh, humans and gods, notably Zeus, who often stands in for divine reason. Oh, so they had a sort of a realist uh, religious perspective. Yeah, and that okay. and and that becomes it, it gets translated into uh, um, virtuous actions are. In agreement. What is in agreement short for? In agreement with nature. What is in agreement with nature short for? In agreement with the laws of nature. What is that short for? In agreement with the laws of cosmic nature um, that is somewhat, you know, that's divinely ordained in some way. And so in many ways, Kant picks up on this. He has this idea that uh, when you're acting morally, you're acting in accord with the law of nature. That's the formula of the law of nature is um, one of his formulas in the categorical imperative. So they, they think that there are, um, you know, they're precursors to natural law theory. Do they spell it out in any way? No. They think by and large, for example, there are preferred and dispreferred goods. What's a preferred good? By and large, the type called health as opposed to disease. But is it sometimes the case that, as we would put it, that a token uh, instance of disease is preferred? Yeah. You know, maybe if um, you're going to be someone, you know, Nero says you're going to die tomorrow for suicide. Maybe it's good to get sick in advance <laughs> and, and and die naturally. So I'm, you know, an example that's not in the text, but that that kind of idea. So they somehow think that, this what they borrow from or get from Socrates in some way that that you are um, you're um, that a good person can't be harmed because the good person's virtue is in their control. The all the selections, wise selections, they think you kind of get guidance by because they're in accord with nature. Now, how you know they're in accord with nature? That's not at all worked out. Hmm. Um, and they give you lots of you know examples. Some things ha are, have no selection value. How many, uh, you know, whether um, you should have a scraper is something that you would take dirt off your body with before you go in a wrestling match. You know, is it to have it or not have it? Not so good. How many hairs on your head? Doesn't really matter that much, that sort of thing. So returning again to uh, Stoicism and war. Now, you mentioned that Marcus Aurelius's writings came like when he was on the battlefield, maybe couldn't sleep, he was writing. Now, has Stoic philosophy been employed by warriors and soldiers sort of continually since then? Or was your work a revival? in a way? Good question. Um, it was something of a revival picking up on the fact that Stockdale had written uh, this book, um, what's it called? Sort of Philosophical Reflections of, a, of an Aviator or something like that. You know, and so, as I said, he had been uh, an influence of the Naval Academy and had taught in um, at the Naval War, uh, I think it was the Naval War College um, previously. 
um, and even maybe Virginia Military Inst VMI Institute. I'm not sure about that. But anyway, he had translated his experience in Vietnam into some writings. Yeah. And he, and he became a kind of, uh, his work was known within the military community. Were philosophers really taking it seriously or thinking that much about it? I don't think so until I wrote Stoic Warriors. Um, and that really was in part because I wanted to protect a lot of people that I worked with and who were so um, fascinated by this idea of stoicism with a little s, that this wasn't real stoicism, that stoicism has really prescient views and important views about emotions. It's not just about sitting on them, but it's about ways you can manage them, a kind of cognitive behavioral therapy of sorts. And they also had really important views about the place. I mean, Seneca, if you think, look at it really carefully, he doesn't say you can't grieve, you can't cry, you can't shed tears. Those are all overstatements. So I, I wanted to set the record straight, you might say, and put, put out there both a plausible as well as healthy uh, view of Stoicism. If we were going to go forward and think of Stoicism as a, a natural fit for the military. That said, of late, um, I, I have been told, uh, not personally, that James uh, um, um, Mattis, um, who was Secretary of Defense and um, um, top Marine, um, puts in his haversack Marcus Aurelius when he goes downrange. So, you know, a tattered copy. So it, it, it's... Um, That's poetic. It's carried by, and I've heard others, some of my students have told me, they carry Marcus Aurelius in their backpack and give it to some of their um, subordinates. So, um, hmm. you know, and it, it, Naval, you know, I know a fair bit about philosophy at West Point and the Naval Academy. And about how it's taught, you mean? Yeah, yeah, because a lot of my students end up being teachers there and on faculty there. Um, and I go and give talks there and, you know, it's pretty sophisticated. Just War Theory is extremely sophisticated. Um, Michael Walzer has taught there. They, they've they been teaching Michael Walzer almost since the book came out of Just and Unjust Wars. So. Hmm. so when I think about all the ways in which stoicism might be applied to war, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to, I mean, even enumerate all of them. There are just so many. But since you mentioned belonging mm -hmm. i one thing that comes to mind is the fraternal and maybe this is redundant fraternal brotherhood uh, among soldiers mm -hmm. in combat mm -hmm. now does stoicism have anything to say about this sort of relationship in particular i mean that that mm -hmm. image you described of somebody, a, a torso separated from its legs, separated from its arms and hands, this sort of thing. I can see that being a very powerful image uh, on the battlefield uh, conveyed to one's uh, subordinates. Um, yeah. It, another image that Marcus gives, if you, uh, teeth have to work together, upper and lower jaw. <laughs> Um, we have to be in sync is one of his phrases. And it, you can kind of see that. I don't know if specifically the Stoics talk a fair bit about um, 
the idea of belonging or a, a, a brotherhood of arms, a cadre. Um, I have written a bit about Stoic social grit in the sense of, of um, you know, um, cover each other's back, um, bring, bring home your troops, never leave a fallen comrade behind. Those are ingrained in military persons. And I think what, uh, what happens again, this is tangentially related to stoicism is that there's a lot of suffering of moral injury, um, due to war. And by moral injury, I mean the moral anguish that comes from moral conflicts where, where, or moral transgressions where you could perpetrate them, um, knowingly or unknowingly, um, where you could witness them or where you're the victim of them. Um, and that's somewhat different from uh, post-traumatic stress. Post-traumatic stress is a, a, a diagnosis that came out in 1980 in the DSM Diagnostic and Statistic Manual. And it was really to do both with war and rape, as it happened in Boston, um, noted by a researcher. In Boston, did you say? It, it, Boston Lying in Hospital, Brigham and Women's, um, noted by a remarkably uh, good psych psychologist at the time, um, Judith Herman, um, Judy Herman. And she, there was this confluence of Vietnam veterans coming home and rape victims feeling like they had been, that they both were the agents of wrongdoing and also the victims. And so the idea of, that's post-traumatic stress, but post-traumatic stress by and large came to be signally because of the time, 1980s, a fear response. You were responding to stress. You're responding to um, life threat uh, and you can't control it. And it out, it's adaptive initially, but then it gets maladaptive as it persists. Moral injury, which is on the, um, talked a lot about in, in war circles and VA and Veterans Administration and the like, has to do with, as I said, the, the sense in which your moral identity is shattered either because of what you've done as an actor, what you've suffered as a victim, or what you've seen as, a, as an up-close bystander. And all the emotions that come with that, shame, guilt, resentment, betrayal, distrust, are brought to bear. And this happens in war. You can't bring your buddy home. You survive, someone else doesn't survive. You're standing a foot away, he gets blown up by a grenade, you don't. You knock down the door where you definitely hear um, armor uh, on, or, or um, bullets on the other side and you kill a kid who you know might be put um, as a um, as a bit of a decoy in, uh, on the other side of the door. And I mean, checkpoints, you tell people to stop, it's the third, fourth warning, and then you shoot or you give someone an order to shoot and you end up killing someone on, on the way to a hospital with a family um, in the car. Those, I'd say, are places where you want to know what does stoicism say about that? Can you be strong, resilient, have grit in the face of devastating moral injuries of those sorts? Mm -hmm. And the Stoics, you know, don't have a ton to say about that, except I've written in Stoic Wisdom in Seneca's plays. Um, I think there's some remarkable plays, 
in, in Hercules Rages is one of them. Trojan Women is another in which there is discussion about being undone by your own transgressions and feeling suicidal as a result. Um, Heracles or Hercules comes back from his 12 labors. His stepmother Juno has one more uh, horrible deed um, that he asked her, uh, that, that she wants him to co commit. And he, she stupid, she drugs him um, a little like Athena sometimes does in Philictides. She drugs him and he ends up killing his whole family. He bursts through the bursts into this world from Hades, um, eager to see his family, then goes mad and ends up killing them. And he wants to kill himself. And it's a friend who says, use your heroic courage to stay your hand. And his father says, the deed is not yours, but it was your stepmother's. So those are really powerful examples to me of moral injury. And they're also powerful examples of moral bids for more moral repair that are coming from a beloved father and a beloved friend to try to help this horribly devastated, racked with guilt Hercules um, not commit suicide at that moment. Hmm. Something that I wonder, so Stanford and Georgetown versus West Point and the Naval Academy, they're very different educational institutions. I mean, Stanford and Georgetown are, are research institutions and the others are military schools. And when I go to a metaphysics class, it's not like it's it's supposed to, like I'm supposed to get something out of the class that will really teach me how to live. It's There's not really a, a normative component to the course. Whereas at the military schools, I assume that on some level, all of the education is geared toward training uh, in some way or another. And I wonder if, is Stoicism taught, say, in a philosophy course, in an ethics course, so that students are better able to deal with the sorts of hardships that you described? Like, I'm thinking, I mean, one thing I just think of, I think you might have mentioned it, you mentioned PTSD. I, I'm thinking of shell shock in World War One trenches. I mean, granted, you mentioned that Stoicism wasn't sort of taught in this way until relatively recently, but is learning Stoicism or being taught or trained in Stoicism something that could conceivably prevent uh, post-traumatic stress or disorder after uh, an experience like being in the trenches in World War One. That would be a tall order, I think. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, certainly, the academies train officers, and you're quite right. But some, to some degree, so do institutions like Stanford and Georgetown. And I've taught at ROTC programs at Stanford that was linked with Berkeley. Um, and we teach bioethics. Um, and I'm, I presume you do as well. Um, 
at, at Stanford. Um, so it's not as if we totally segregate um, the life of the mind from the life of practice. Um, nor the, in the reverse, do they exclude the life of the mind from the life of practice at a place at places like um, military academies. There are people doing very sophisticated physics and math, um, some of which will be used as in electrical engineering, for example, or some of it, you know, may be used in in um, astronomy or, you know, people doing very these days, I guess, very sophisticated data analysis for cybersecurity and, and the like. Um, uh, so they are places that, that cultivate the mind as well as cultivate practice. So just, you know, to um, um, bust a myth in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I didn't want to say it was all one or the other. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, I, I don't think philosophy students at Stanford or Georgetown have to go out at four or five o'clock and sail boats or, you know, run around the field a lot as part of their, as right. part of, as Very part little of that here. training. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, and lots of people, and some, Lots of people are really, really get immersed in this stuff. I passed along an article to you that was in the New York Times last week um, about no, Ian Fishback. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he, really, really bright guy, um, an Arabist. Um, a what uh, did you say? An Arabist. He 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 studied Arabic, a okay. Eastern a, a Mid Eastern specialist, um, and uh, goes during his 9-11 happens and he goes to Iraq and Afghanistan. And he takes very seriously his education at West Point about just war and, and also learning Geneva Conventions um, and what you can and can't do as a, a military guy. Um, and that includes not torturing or many of the kinds of uh, activities that were going on during um, Abu Ghraib and what he up close witnessed. So, I mean, he's, uh, and many uh, is living a life of the mind where he has to put it into practice in the field. So. Hmm. When you mentioned torture. I was curious, I was going to ask if stoicism has anything to say about um, torture. I imagine it, it could be used as for somebody undergoing torture, but does it say anything about actually using it? Yeah, using it. At some point, I was looking at doing research on this. Uh, you know, the Stoics have lots to say. In particular, Seneca has lots to say about servants, and he's often thought as a humanist that you should treat your servants well. Um, and that they too share in humanity as you do. Um, but by and large, he's saying that, I think, because you don't want your enslaved people to be fugitives. And if they're fugitives, they could also go to court and complain <laughs> about how you tortured them or beat them up. Um, and that's, that was, that's always a worry at that period of time. Um, so, uh, I wouldn't say practices are that enlightened. I don't know, um, specifics. I can't speak about force feeding, stress positions, 
um, 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 sleep deprivation, loud music, the sorts of things we know to have been the case about during what was called enhanced interrogation techniques mm-hmm. were waived as okay. And the Geneva Accords were mm-hmm. somewhat arcane. Earlier, you mentioned your work in mental health. And I, I saw that you have training in psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you an analyst or it's just some some training there? And I guess, has that influenced your work at all with uh, the military or on stoicism? So a ways back, I did um, a research degree in psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic psychotherapy here in Washington. And in part, I was fascinated by um, issues of development, so um, childhood development and the like. And also, I've always been interested uh, from the days of my dissertation onward um, on issue, on understanding the emotions. Um, And obviously it plays, emotions play a huge role in um, ancient philosophy and understanding ancient philosophy. So I ended up doing um, six, seven years. I do not see patients and I've never been trained to see patients. So I'm not a clinician, Okay. but it, it it has come to, um, it is intersected with my work with the military because at various points I got called in to attend hearings. For example, the Pentagon was holding on, um, suicide, uh, the suicide epidemic, um, that we've seen in the military, um, post nine 11 and especially 2009, 2010, 2011, um, I got, I went to Guantanamo, um, to observe, um, prisoners that were being held and some of them who were on starvation, um, programs and late, we later learned they were force fed as well. Um, and so, uh, I, and I've been an advocate for individuals in the military who've needed psychological help. Um, including Ian Fishback, whom I mentioned earlier. Um, and I've often seen my work as overlapping with um, an under, sort of a broader understanding of moral psychology, where it is somewhat practical. Um, we, we see students, we're in the middle of um, a mental health crisis in education. Um, I, we are often the first line of defense. <laughs> we see students who are struggling and um, I, uh, I make referrals or I ask students pretty up, pretty to the point, pretty up close. Um, you know, are you okay? Um, so I, I, you might say I make myself more accessible than some teachers might. Um, and I, I think I've also worked hand in hand with people in the military who are military psychiatrists who work on moral injury at the VA. I've given talks around the world on, issues of moral injury. So uh, I've straddled the worlds, you might say, of philosophy and mental health. Yeah. And I mean, granted that you're not a clinician, so you're not seeing patients, but still as someone trained in psychotherapy, do you think that philosophy can or should be a tool for for therapists or people seeking therapy? Or... Does the relationship go the other way? Yeah, I'm not 
so sure that philosophy itself is a tool. I think that when we, you know, when we we teach courses on the emotions, it's re- it's quite useful to understand how the brain works. Um, what a little bit of neurobiology, um, you know, what SSRIs are doing. Um, um, to be able to pick up depression if you see it in your students or in your class or issues to do with gender identity um, that we see in our classes. So I wouldn't say so much philosophy as practical. You know, I would never, I, I raise a lot of eyebrows about people out there that are coaches, stoic coaches. There's a lot of that going on. Um, yeah. There's a lot of folks who hang up shingles that I don't think should hang up shingles <laughs> by a shingle. I'm mean, old school. I mean, a degree, um, a degree where you're, yeah, yeah. You're in practice. Um, yeah. uh, and I, I think whether or not licensing procedures are, are good ones or not, I do think you should be trained and have supervision. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, and there's a lot of stuff that happens on the internet that mm-hmm. I think, what not happen. It's yeah, like, you can get a, uh, you can buy a, a doctorate in metaphysics for $20. Online. Oh, okay. Yeah, from the and, universal. Yeah, seven years at Harvard. What was I doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How long you're at Stanford. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the reason though that I asked that question is, I mean, we were talking about moral, you, well, you were talking about moral injury before, and right. I know that you've written about how soldiers, can return from war and, and lead healthy lives. And I was wondering if um, Stoicism philosophy uh, was important to that. I don't really know. Um, I, I'm never really into um, a fully applied philosophy. You know, sometimes novels are the right way. I, I think mm-hmm. people that are coming home and finding it hard to... Um, settle in i mean um you know it should should seek therapy um although it's still stigmatized you know i mentioned moral injury moral injury for uh, a a contemporary group doesn't carry the stigma of pts or ptsd and that's to me very interesting because ptsd didn't carry the stigma that you previously mentioned of shell shock or war anesthesia 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 um or you know any of the kinds of of ways that we used to speak about war or trauma um and i i think that you need to really think that war is devastating you don't get over it right away i have students that are journalists who were initially um um, in the battlefield and then started covering war for major newspapers. Um, and they're re-exposed to what they saw when they were in uniform and it brings it back. And so I, I do think being open to um, therapy, having really good um, partners, um, not living alone, <laughs> um, also not self-medicating, um, with either um, street drugs or alcohol. Or, Ice cream not, in my case. What's that? Ice cream What's in my it? case. Oh, okay. Well, that's, you know, depends if you're <laughs> diabetic. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
or having weapons around. <laughs> um, all of those things are uh, not healthy ways of treating thyself, oneself. Mm -hmm. And that actually brings us to what I'd like to finish with, which is the new book right behind you, Stoic Wisdom, Ancient Lessons. Mm -hmm. And so you've written a lot of books. And what then was your goal in writing this one? What was the purpose that drove it now? I had fire in my belly that, good way that, to start. that grew and grew from hearing people talk about stoicism as life hacks or self-help or um, ways in which we could control our fear, manage fear, manage anger. And I never heard in these chats I would be in, you know, sometimes on very reputable programs, BBC and other things like that, discussions of the social aspect of Stoicism. And as I read the texts, there was overwhelming uh, evidence that the Stoics took seriously our connection to others, our affiliations, our sense of community and sense of collaboration. It's not the only theme, but the idea that we retreat to an inner citadel and have control by um, removing ourselves in some ways from the complicated and messy world of here and now just seemed wrong. And in fact, the sage, um, if you look at a, folks like um, Diogenes Laertius, fifth century, I believe Arius Didymus, someone who was reporting on earlier Greek um, uh, writers, they talk about the, this, the wise one, the Hasafas, the wise one called the sage, as someone who is in this world. He's, he's what Aristotle calls a good person. A serious person is Aristotle's phrase. And it's a person who um, can make money. So is in the, in the world of money making, knows how to get it, where to get it, and how long to hold it. That's pretty concrete. Um, is, uh, could be a general, could be a politician, and could be someone actually very interested in setting up a, a more, I quote now, a more complete political system. That means someone might actually get angry, not just manage anger, but get angry at injustice and set about to try to change it as a Stoic. So it's this idea that the Stoic is safe by and finds safe harbor by retreating to an inner citadel. I think an idea probably got Pierre Hadot might have planted um, isn't the only notion of Stoicism. So I wanted to think about resilience as having social supports. So it's you know ancient lessons for modern resilience, and I don't think we're resilient um, by turning to our inner resources only. We're agile when we get supported from systems that, that are larger than ourselves, family structures, friendships. And that, that was that was the um, fire in my belly. And that's why I ended up writing it. And so prior to my posing of that question, you were enumerating some ways in which people abuse themselves. So alcohol, uh, drugs, in my case, ice cream. But there's a chapter in your book called healing through self-compassion. 
stoic warriors. And as someone who has very little self-compassion, uh, this chapter really jumped out at me. So what is the, the general idea here? And is, do we heal through, I mean, self-compassion to me, I mean, it just, it doesn't sound like you're going to respond with, by employing like the notion of, of brotherhood and community. It seems like a very individual thing, having self-compassion. Ah, so some of it in thinking about self-compassion or self-empathy, I was really thinking about the ways in which we are empathic toward each other. And that sometimes we learn self-empathy or self-compassion when we're, uh, when we're very hard on ourselves by taking seriously how others view us. They view us with a sense of forgiveness or with a sense of, it wasn't your fault. I mentioned um, um, Heracles, Hercules' father earlier, who says the, the, the guilt is not yours, but your stepmother's Juno. She was the one that really committed the crime um, by um, putting you in that stupor by through which you then used your hand um, in this murderous way. So some of it is the ways in which we take on the perspective of someone else who shows us compassion. In the moral injury repair therapy circles, there's this idea in which you would bring in an empty chair, um, often uh, say of a fallen comrade whom you thought you could have saved and should have saved. And it's asked, you know, would that person hold you, feel the same kind of um, anger toward you as you feel toward yourself? Um, are they holding you accountable in the way you hold yourself accountable? So this is in the sense of, of overwrought self-anger, overwrought guilt, you might say. Um, you know, in, in some cases it may be apt in the sense that maybe you could, we, we always could do more. There's always one act or something like that by which we could do something more. And it's healthy in some ways to have a, a, an active conscience, but in other cases, it's, um, it's murderous. It's self-murderous. And that's what I was thinking of in terms of self-empathy or self-compassion. Show yourself the kind of compassion that others would show you and who might even be in some ways the victim's the wrong word, but might have been the person whom you felt that you could have done more to help save or treat as a doctor um, or the like. And the, so the subtitle of the book is Ancient Lessons for Modern Resilience. Is there something distinct about contemporary times that calls for stoic wisdom uh, i mean uh, or a way i guess beyond contemporary war which we've already discussed in which we need a, a new or somewhat altered interpretation of stoicism to best serve us um well i was writing this book during the pandemic and i certainly uh, felt lots of very strongly that mm. we don't know how we're going to come out of this um, we, but we, we do know that we have to work collaboratively, um, and that it's, and that in some cases we weren't doing that well. I mean, in this country, it was very hard to share 
data in the way that in Britain, where it was more centralized, they were able to move along in some of the development of the vaccine in a way that we couldn't. It was well noted at that point. Um, you can follow what we are and aren't doing globally to help address this pandemic and, and others that are coming up. So, um, and people were really struggling with loss uh, and terrific loneliness um, and deferred plans if people wanted to have children, have uh, get married, um, simply be able to socialize. Uh, so, or, or attend classes and, you know, be it Stanford or Georgetown, um, and not just in your senior year, but for the first, the first three years. So all of these are very the disruptors, as they say. And I think it was a time in which I felt very acutely that, um, I had to be agile. We all had to be agile with regard to how we live our lives. Uh, what we expect of our friends and family as we visit them, if we do visit them, and um, how we go on teaching, for example. So, yeah, I think resilience was um, called for and caught my attention. Well, the last question I have is kind of like a, a hangers-on, but I saw that in your course on Stoic Ethics, you have a unit on Stoicism and toxic hypermasculinity. And I was wondering what the, what the relationship is there between the two. So while doing research on the book, I came across um, Donna Zuckerberg's book. This is Zuckerberg's um, sister, who's a classicist. Oh, oh. Hmm. yeah. Um, and she may be in your neck of the woods. Uh, I, think, I think did relocate to the West Coast um, from Princeton. And uh, she did a wrote an interesting book called Not All Dead White Men or something to that effect. And I started going down that rabbit hole. And it's not my thing to spend a lot of time on Reddit or other kinds of sites, but I did a little bit following her lead. And it was quite ugly. You probably know this, but Greco-Roman thought is easily appropriated and it is appropriated in part by um, in the in the, the bro scene and the bro scene <laughs> gets pretty ugly. It, it gets ugly in the sense of um, bashing women for this or that, for being seductresses and the like, and also thinking that the only people that really can tough it out are guys and hypermasculinist guys. And, and it, having taught at military academies and, knowing that circle, they worry about it tremendously. I mean, at a recent visit to West Point, that was on their minds and they use that word, hyper-masculinist. And, so, and that's guys using it with wor worried about the effect of the education on them. And women, also women cadets, women midshipmen, they worry as well. So I lived and breathed in those atmosphere in those um, milieus. I knew what it felt like. I knew how it was hurting women. And to see that Greek and Roman thought is being appropriated in the in these bro channels, and some of them quite horrific, really angered me. So on a positive note to end, um, Musonius Rufus, wonderful name, and the teacher of Epictetus, 
um, said, my lectures are open to all men and women alike, and women were endowed by nature with the same amount of reason that men have. And so they are as capable as men uh, in cultivating excellence of character. So, mm. you know, uh, clearly bro talk doesn't always look at Musonius Rufus. They look at easier <laughs> <laughs> digest, yeah. but yeah. That, that is what um, caught my attention. Okay. Well, Nancy, thanks so much for talking with me and I'll encourage everyone to read Stoic Wisdom. Thank you so much, Robinson. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Hold on, geeselings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.